This is Henry Evans, and you're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? I am Henry Evans. I'm founder and managing partner of an organizational development and strategy firm called Dynamic Results, and I'm co-author with Dr. Colin Foster of the new book, Step Up, Lead in Six Moments That Matter. And it's quite an international firm as you're based on the West Coast of the United States. And I'm, is, is Colm on the West Coast of Ireland by chance or just in Ireland? Uh, he is outside of uh, Dublin. And like most of our team, he's working in anywhere from three to eight countries per year. Hmm. So, and I, I love that because it actually shows not only does, uh, from a cultural perspective, does it apply across a lot of different countries, but it also that the, the info that's in this book has been in demand on, on several different continents. I, I kind of want to actually start there and talk about what led to taking this in, in book form. You guys have a thriving consulting practice. Why give away the store in a book? Well, um, we do probably have an attitude of abundance, and we also believe that the best way to test ideas before you go to market with them is to use them within your client's systems. And your clients are the best filter for telling you if your ideas are good or not. You know, I joke when I'm giving a keynote that my mom and I love all of my ideas, but I discover at market sometimes that not everyone does. So we bring our concepts into very diverse client systems with the international reach that we have. We, we figure out what works and what doesn't cross-culturally, and we only publish what's been proven to work. Hmm. And uh, a lot of that it comes up in this new book, Step Up, Lead in Six Moments That Matter. The, the book is really kind of cool because I, I feel like a lot of leadership books are structured around a model, right? Especially a leadership book from a team that's sort of consulting. It's here's our four or five box model and, and read the book. And then later we'll sell you a whole training curriculum on it, etc. What I love is that you all have, have boiled it down into moments. And I feel like that's incredibly important because when I think about the leaders that influence my own life, when I think about teachers, anyone who's really had a resonant impact on my life, it's not about the model they followed. It's about what they did in specific moments. I, I love that you've structured around those moments. Thanks. Um, we, I don't know if it's by coincidence. It's definitely not by design, but, but the three people who run our firm in the three different parts of the world, Colm in Europe and Chris in India, Asia, and myself in North America, we all, like you, come from uh, competitive martial arts backgrounds. And in addition to whatever academic or, or business credentials we, 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 we may have, and you certainly learn in the competitive environment of uh, fighting, that your success or your failure happens in moments. It's it's much more clearly illustrated in that environment. Uh, so you can see during our video interview that my nose points to the right, and that's because I wasn't making good choices in a specific moment in one of my earliest matches. In business, we often find out in a review, or we find out you know six months or twelve months later that we did something really wrong in a moment. Or sometimes we find out at the end of a project or when we don't get a promotion or a, or a job. And so we did try to crystallize the six moments that we think occur most often and that we observe our clients making the most mistakes in. And the cadence of each chapter is here's how you recognize if you're in one of those moments. And here is what you do once you've recognized you're in one of those moments. Hmm. 
And I, I love that the titles of the chapters are actually very action-oriented. Like, when you're in one of those moments, how do you respond? What's the right action to take? I would suggest ducking in the case of your nose. Um, one of them, two, two or three of them are, are actually fairly counterintuitive. One of them I thought was was almost laugh-out-loud funny, but it was this idea of avoiding terminal politeness, right? I, I was always taught to be polite to everybody, right? Just be nice all of the time. But you have this phrase, terminal politeness. Could you unpack that for us and tell us how to avoid it, of all things? Sure. So that that's a phrase that, that we coined uh, probably about eight years ago, working with um, a very specific type of client. And we noticed that in their environment, they hired best and brightest from some of the top engineering schools in the world. And they would get them all into a room to work on what are literally life and death projects. They're in national defense. And they would have problems that they would often couch as um, technical in, in, in nature when they actually turned out to be relational in nature. And they were happy to talk about technical disagreements, but they weren't happy to talk about relational or emotional disagreements. And they certainly weren't comfortable talking about character flaws. And this led to them being late on deliverables in a very high stakes environment repeatedly over many years. And we would say, well, why don't we just talk about the elephant in the room and that people are not offering ideas to this one leader because this leader tends to cut the heads off of messengers when they bring up bad news. And they would literally say to us, we don't do that here. Uh, if you have the title and you have the authority, you, are, you have the authority to lead and to choose direction for the team. So we don't tend to challenge that. And I said, well, what about when, when you know they're going off a cliff? We also find in certain cultures, um, certainly in many Eastern cultures, you culturally should not, cannot, and you've been raised not to challenge people of a higher caste or someone who's older or someone who has a higher title. So we said, you're not just being um, obedient. Uh, and they said, no, we're not. We're also being polite. We don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. And we said, but you're not just being polite. You're being terminally polite because here are the projects that have failed and the relationships and careers that have been damaged by not telling people what they're doing wrong. And that was a sticky term. We noticed our clients immediately would write that term down. And that's what led to us naming, uh, naming this moment, avoiding terminal politeness. So, so how do we avoid it? How do we actually make sure? I mean, obviously, maybe uh, spend 30 years in a totally different culture. But barring that, how do we make the switch and avoid it? So I had a mentor who just passed away last year. He coached uh, and he ran CEO think tanks for more than 50 years. And I asked him one time after we both listened to a psychologist talk about active li listening, what he had learned about listening. He said, well, you know, I'm not as fancy as that guy. He said, but I think that if one person in your circle is telling you that you're an ass, you can ignore that individual. And if two people in your circle are telling you that you're an ass, you should get curious and examine the feedback. If you've got three or more people in your circle telling you you're an ass, buy a cart, you're an ass. And he was saying that if we're getting the same message from unrelated sources over a period of time, there's a message there that we need to be listening to. And when people are willing to bring us that message, we should honor and respect them and make them feel rewarded and appreciated because they're trying to help us improve. And we wrote in this book and in our last book, um, a quote by Randy Pausch, who wrote the last lecture. And, and he wrote that if people have stopped giving you feedback, they've given up on you. And we believe that's true. Teams that are really committed to one another 
say what needs to be said and they find a way to say it so that it's actually been heard. Hmm. I think there's a there's a huge lesson there for for all leaders about how to respond to criticism, how to respond to that as as sort of feedback. I I know a lot of this is cultural, so I, I am hesitant to say a lot of this, but I've I've always sort of felt like you know uh, it's similar to Randy Pouch. If somebody is criticizing you, at least they sort of care enough to actually criticize you. Now, I mean, when they're 13 years old, they might be doing it to raise their social status in the school lunchroom. But as an adult to an adult, there usually is something deeper there that's worth breaking in. And uh, the flip side of that is the thing that I've learned that's amazing is e- even in uh, U.S., which is a much less, a much shorter power distance culture, you still have that. But how that leader responds to that first moment of criticism, do they accept it? Do they make that person feel heard? That affects everybody else watching. You know, it's not just about that that dynamic one one to one person relationship. Everybody else is watching how you respond to feedback. It's sort of this is a really weird analogy, but you know, they say on your first day in prison you should just take out the biggest guy. On your first day in leadership, maybe you should just take on the bit, biggest critics, let them know that you hear them and you welcome their feedback. That's a that's not only a, a great call out, David, but it it ties right into a coaching session I was doing with with uh, one of the country's top leaders in the software industry yesterday. Uh, she reacted to being challenged in a meeting a couple of weeks ago in a way that she now regrets. She basically went off on the person who challenged her. And to build out on on what was said in the last lecture by by Randy, this person who challenged her probably doesn't care about her. So when she was offering this criticism to my client in a public forum, it was not because she cares about my client and wants to see her doing better. She, it was probably more likely she was trying to sabotage my client and increase her own status through sabotaging. So what I said, she was saying, you know, that thing you say about if they're giving you feedback, they care wasn't true in this case. She was calling me out in front of 20 other executives. And I said, well, no, she did care. She just didn't care about you. She cared about herself, but, but they're still caring present. You've got her emotionally engaged and your game in that moment is to respond rather than react and come back at her in a way that you will feel proud of later. And we spent yesterday talking about how to, how to do that. It's a a great segue into one of the other more counterintuitive moments and actions you can take that matter because there's the people that criticize for the sake of criticism, the ones that criticize for feedback. And then there's also pessimists and optimists, the eternal sort of which are you uh, in a firm. And and I am a, a daydreaming eternal optimist. And so me, it's really hard for me to look at all pessimists and not consider them just like those people that are criticizing me just to bring me down, right? But you, you actually talk about you need to leverage pessimists and pessimism. How, how do we do that? What does that look like? Okay, so um, sounds like you, like me, are a recovering optimist. And... Um, so I am married to somebody who has a pessimistic bias and I have an optimistic bias. It, we recommend that you get, if you don't have a pessimist on your team, get one. People like you and I, David, we, we bring a lot to a team. One thing we'll bring to a team is, is a belief that they can win. We, we bring drive and motivation to a, a team. We can get people on board for a project. But our optimism is a double-edged sword. We also might be, people like you and I might easily be missing signs of roadblocks and obstacles that would keep us from winning or make the win much more difficult to achieve that a pessimist sees if you wake them up at three in the morning. They can pop out of bed and see those things. And so we believe, and we talk about this a lot in, in the book, that if you don't have a pessimist on your team, invite one. 
another thing you might want to do with them is when they offer challenges, make them feel appreciated and respected for offering those challenges, but also try to mitigate and control the momentum of the meeting. So you don't want the whole meeting dialogue or email string to get focused on that problem. And you certainly don't want to get sucked into a vortex of redundant dialogue where that person's allowed to repeat the problem or the challenge over and over. You want to thank them and shift the momentum of the organization to focusing on a solution. Um, we lastly say that you should not put pessimists. So yes, you should have one on your team, but you should not put them in leadership roles because nobody wants to be led into battle by a leader saying we're going to die on the battlefield. So uh, we challenge organizations we work with to leverage these people, make them feel appreciated, and not to put them in charge of teams with a few exceptions. If you have an audit team, if you have a team of people who do auditing for a living, a pessimistic leader might be good because they never believe you're finished finding mistakes or problems. And so they might actually raise the level of performance on that team. Hmm. Yeah, one of my dear friends, uh, Heidi Grant Halverson, uses the terms to to avoid optimism and pessimism. She uses the terms promotion focused mindset and prevention focused mindset, and I think that kind of encapsulates how we need both. Although w one of the things I don't think she talks about in prevention mindset is well, what about the people that are looking constantly looking for errors, not to lose but just to sort of do it. We we do as much as we don't like it. We do need those people in life. I, and by the way, I don't know that I've fully recovered. For being an optimist. I don't know that I've hit bottom yet. I think you have to hit rock bottom on optimism first before you begin recovering as one. Well, I've my, my optimistic bias, and I've published articles on this, um, led one of the five companies I ran into a reorganization. So there were clear signs that I was making some poor choices and that I was getting this company leveraged in a, in a very dangerous way. And my optimism kept telling me, along with data, we had 10 years of history of of double digit EBITDA and, and winning and growing year over year, but it was really a personality trait. It was my optimistic bias that started to dismiss some data points that a pessimist or even a pragmatist would have picked up on easily and they would have changed their strategy off those data points. I chose to ignore them. And so looking back in hindsight, the people who were bringing me those obstacles, who I considered to be really pain in the butt pessimists, people that I felt were dragging me down, we're raising red flags that I should have been looking at and paying attention to. And people lost their jobs when I didn't. See, uh, there's an amazing amount of reflection in that in that uh, story alone. Okay, not, not just on the optimism, pessimism side, but that idea, you know, we started this whole conversation with a discussion about how in a, in a combat sport, feedback is immediate. In a leadership role, sometimes you never get it. And, and what I love is that in addition to writing an awesome book about how to act in these moments and, and how best... To, to leverage these moments, you also have this benefit of being able to reflect on how you acted in those moments. And and uh, to steal another one from Randy Pausch, you've got experience. And experience is what you get when you didn't get what you want. You know, we would also say that one important thing for people to think about uh, around the idea of leveraging pessimism is that the higher you get on the organizational chart, the fewer people are going to give you those constructive criticisms. It's a sad reality of moving your way up an organizational chart. So when you get them, the higher you go, the more appreciative you ought to be of those people and the more safe and rewarded and encouraged you should be making those people feel for bringing you those observations. Hmm. They, if I, honestly, if I could distill the entire interview into like 20 seconds, that's right there because I, uh, I know too many leaders who 
did not do that. And as a result, many of them are not leaders anymore. Uh, if it's okay, though, I want to switch from the book. The book is fantastic, but we already got into a little bit of a personal story, and I kind of want to switch from the book to you and ask you a couple questions. Uh, the first being, what are you reading right now? So I try to read uh, something for just to get my mind off of work and my own development and concurrently read something that helps me develop at work. So um, right now for my development at work, I'm reading a book by um, Carmine Gallo called Talk Like Ted, um, The Nine Public Speaking Secrets. I don't want to butcher his title. I think it's of the world's top minds or world's top thought leaders. I I think it's minds. And I'm also reading a, a really interesting autobiography of Richard Pryor. Sorry, a biography of Richard Pryor, um, who was certainly a, a comic genius. And uh, it's it's quite an interesting read. I, I love the the balance there between actually uh, your your whole idea of public speaking like a TED audience and comedy. Which, honestly, maybe Ted needs more of. Uh, 18 minutes is a long time to be so serious. I'm just kidding. That's a, that's a total joke. <laughs> All right. Um, the, the next being, so you've got the book, and the book is by no means launched. It's, it's out. It's, it's having some awesome success. You've got the consulting firm. But what, what's next for you and what's next for the group? Well, we've just um, started working in seven Latin American countries. We're about to do a big expansion in Europe. Um, we are already starting work on the next book, which is uh, about 21st century leadership competencies. We've developed uh, an assessment tool for leaders that has been on the market for about two years called the Leadership Edge. And the book will actually be called the Leadership Edge, where we talk about how most organizations are measuring competencies that were really relevant back in the 80s and 90s when most assessments were validated. But they're missing competencies that are required today, like cross-cultural sensitivity as one example. And one of the things I forgot to mention when we were talking about the book is that the Step Up book also includes that free uh, assessment. Tell us a bit ab- about that one and, and maybe even how it pairs with Leadership Edge. Sure. Well, well, the Leadership Edge is, is, first of all, a much deeper, more robust type of assessment. It includes a one-hour behavioral interview. And we think that the way leaders are assessed, which in most cases is exclusively through a computerized algorithm, is not a full picture of how a person is going to do for instance, we all do differently under different bosses. So what our relationship with our supervisor is like affects us on the job. But the assessment we include in the book helps you in less than 10 minutes understand how ready you are to lead in the six moments that matter. We also include six or seven other complementary resources in the book. So we have QR codes smattered throughout the book, certainly at the end of each chapter. And we have complimentary resources that our readers can download simply by scanning those codes. Well, yet another reason to check it out, not only to figure out how to avoid terminal politeness, how to leverage pessimists, how to lead in four other moments that matter, and how well you would do when you lead in those moments. The book, again, is Step Up, Lead in Six Moments That Matter. Henry, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. David, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.
Hey everybody, it's David from the Leader Lab Podcast. I just want to thank you for being a part of this community and for listening to this podcast episode. And I want to remind you that you can get even more content from us if you connect with us online. We're at Twitter, twitter.com slash LDRLB, Facebook, facebook.com slash LDRLB. And of course, you can subscribe to this podcast in either iTunes or Stitcher, or just subscribe to our email newsletter and we'll email you every single time we post a new episode. Thanks so much for being a part of the community. Look forward to giving you even more great content.